Hey everyone, are you looking for a job or considering looking for a job in the near future? Hired.com is the platform for top developer and design jobs. So usually when you are looking for a job, you find a company, apply to it, and go through several interviews before you finally get an offer, hopefully, which may or may not be what you were hoping for. So you've gone through all of this work uh, only to find out that the offer is not sufficient or whatever the case may be. On Hired.com, you submit your profile, and before anybody interviews, they give you the offer and salary and equity information upfront before you interview. So you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs that you might not end up wanting because the compensation is too low and doesn't meet your needs. As a developer, you'll get an average of five offers on the platform, all with just filling out a single application. And those offers can come from some of the top companies in the industry, like Facebook and Uber and Stripe, which are all on the platform. Hired.com has full-time and contract opportunities, and it's totally free for you as someone looking for a job. Listeners to The Bike Shed can get a $2,000 bonus for signing up through our link. It is Hired.com slash Bike Shed. So check them out. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the show. So now what, Lila? <laughs> well, I guess we should do our normal intro. We have, we have really, I don't know if you've ever heard of one of our episodes, we have really awkward starts to an episode and then, yeah. uh, because we, I don't know, it just is always awkward. <laughs> Hello, Derek. Hi, Lila. Hello, KF. Hi, y'all. <laughs> Today, Derek and I are joined by Catherine Fellows, known as KF, a functional programmer at large, who is currently on the data team at Simple. How's it going? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Just writing some Rails forms today. Nothing too dramatic. I'm bouncing between Elixir and Ember and teaching somebody that's new to Elixir, Elixir. I have one of those days where I feel like I've spent 10 minutes on every little thing and gotten very little progress as a whole, but hopefully I'm helping <laughs> lots of people. So Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, Catherine, what's going on in your world these days? I know you're giving a talk at Closure West next week. Is that right? Yes, it's next week. I can't remember if it's Friday or Saturday of next week, but yeah. So Closure West is in Seattle this year, so I'm taking the train up from Portland and giving a talk with uh, Anna Pollica, who currently works at Walmart Labs. Cool. What are you guys going to be talking about? Uh, we're going to be talking about sort of experience uh, organizing and helping other people organize closure bridge workshops, which are, uh, they're, if you're familiar with Rails Bridge, they're like Rails Bridge workshops, except we focus on teaching people how to program in closure. So they're basically beginner friendly, like one day workshops in closure for women. Cool. And I was reading through your bio and it says you're on you're on the board of Closure Bridge and Bridge Foundry. Is like Bridge Foundry kind of like an art overarching organization of those or Yeah. So Bridge Foundry is basically a nonprofit umbrella for like Closure Bridge, Rails Bridge, Go Bridge. And if like other people want to start their own sort of like bridge series of workshops for whatever language they work in, then they can sort of like come to Bridge Foundry and we can help them figure out what it looks like to get curriculum up and running, what it looks like to start teaching workshops and like getting TAs and sponsors and stuff like that. So, For your work with Closure Bridge in, in particular, you all have a, a curriculum kind of like set out for anybody to use. Is that how it works? Yeah. So when I say we, like people vaguely, <laughs> yeah. like people a, in the community. A loose collection of people. Yes. There is a loose collection of people that puts together a curriculum that we can use in workshops. So that started out as sort of like how to build a small web application enclosure. And then 
it turned out that there were like a lot of assumptions that you would make about like teaching a beginner level workshop and teaching someone like how to build a web app in a beginner level workshop because that sort of requires knowledge about how the internet works. So that turned into basically doing like visual effects using Quill. And then now there's also a thing called, I think it's called like turtle closure. It's like a little thing where you can move a turtle <laughs> around on the screen and, <laughs> nice. and it'll teach you how to program doing that. What is Quill? Uh, Quill is like the closure wrapper for the processing library. So it lets you make like graphics and stuff in closure. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. And how did you get involved? Did you get involved in Bridge Foundry first or Closure Bridge? Uh, no, I got involved in Closure Bridge first. So I started out, I went to Hackbright Academy, which teaches like full stack Python development. But one of my mentors worked at Twitter. So I started learning Scala halfway through and like wrote my final project in Scala. And uh, I met Bridget Hillary, who at the time was like leading most of the Closure Bridge stuff on Lambda Ladies, which is this like Google group for women who do functional programming. And she was at the time just now like starting to organize people and get them together to start putting on Closure Bridge workshops. So I offered to help because I didn't know Closure, but I knew Scala and was like, you know, I taught myself functional programming in Scala, so I could probably help teach people functional programming in Closure. That's really cool. Yeah. So you have familiarity with all the other, like the, the bridge organizations. Do you think that their successfulness is like dependent on something in the community or like, like, do you notice that like Closure Bridge or Rails Bridge are more successful than some other things? Or is it just a matter of getting critical mass behind in a community behind the idea? Is like, I guess my question is like, is there something about each community that makes these types of organizations more successful than others, do you think? I think there has to be at least like a subset of people who believe fundamentally that you could teach the language to someone who's like not familiar with programming. <laughs> I yeah. think there has to be that subset of people to start with and someone to actually like take it upon themselves to like want to write a curriculum and start teaching workshops for it. And then I think once like the first workshop or two workshops are going on, more people sort of see it as a thing that is capable of being done. <laughs> and then you just start sort of building more and more mass behind it until more and more workshops start going on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting. Like, I wonder, like you said that as you were talking, I was like, yeah, there's probably a reason I don't see like Sea Bridge, because um, <laughs> right? you're like it's going to take you a little while to get up and running. Although there are like, I, I, is there a Go Bridge? Yeah, there is a Go bridge. So like that's this, that's also like kind of a low level systems language kind of thing. So I don't know. You guess, I guess you can do something interesting enough uh, and beginner friendly in those types of languages as well. So yeah, interesting. and I know some of the closure bridge workshops focus on teaching like absolute beginners to programming, and some of them tend to sort of like teach more like intermediate closure workshops. So when I was talking earlier about the curriculum, how it started out as a web app, like that's not really approachable for someone who's absolutely like just now starting learning how to program. But if someone already knows like one other language or something and they come to a closure bridge workshop, then sort of teaching them the basics of the language and then maybe teaching them how to do something that's a little bit more complicated with the language is like that becomes more feasible. And that sort of also falls under the umbrella of closure bridge. So yeah, so it sounds like there are definitely characteristics of certain languages that make them more conducive to being someone's first programming language. There's no such thing as a C bridge yet. There's also no Haskell bridge, for example, to my knowledge. But to your point, Catherine, KF, <laughs> it also sounds like I, I'm, I'm going to get it right. By the end of this, I'm going to get it right. It, it also sounds like 
it's important for there to be kind of a core group of organizers who is thinking about the curriculum and how to make everything manageable and approachable for beginners. Yeah. So Sarah May and Sarah Allen were sort of like the main people who started RailsBridge and they're also still like involved with Bridge Foundry and they lead that also. I think with Closure Bridge, it has helped a lot that early on there's been like Bridget put in so much work into it. So did uh, there was a guy named Clinton Dreisbach who put in a lot of work into it. There was a guy named Sean Corfield who I knew back in San Francisco who also put a lot of work and effort into it. And it's like over a span of like weeks that turn into months, people like using their spare time to write this stuff down. And I think it helps a lot if you have people who are relatively visible in the community sort of saying that it's a thing that's worthwhile and a thing that's worth doing. I know like early on and then as the months have passed, also people from Cognitect, which is the company that Rich Hickey, who sort of like started Closure, that's sort of his consulting company, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they've been really good about like, now we sort of organize workshops that happen the weekend before a big closure conference. And then we'll get some of those attendees like discounted or free passes to the actual conference. So they can then like go to a conference and meet a bunch of closure developers who are doing this in industry. And there's been like a lot of support from sponsors and stuff in different cities as well. So it helps to have companies and people who are doing this in production say publicly that it's a thing that they endorse. Mm-hmm. It makes it makes it sound like a lot more of a like a valid thing to be doing and it gets a lot more volunteers to come and help out. So That's interesting because I know in Boston there's a good number of people at Thoughtbot who help uh, put on and TA Railsbridge, but I don't know if we give that much publicity externally when those events are upcoming. I I can't remember. So I, we should make sure that we are doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Just a note to myself. Yeah. <laughs> So as somebody like I've never I was saying earlier, I've never been to one of these events, but I know like several people who work here who do spend time at them and say that they're really rewarding. Let's say there's an established one in your area already. And um, I think for the majority of our audience, we are people that are already programmers. So we we look we'd be talking mostly to people interested in doing TAing or becoming more involved in the organizations. So like if you wanted to show up and help out at a rails at a rails bridge or a closure bridge or anything like that, what are the kinds of things that you could expect to do? there and what would make you like a useful what would make you successful at it kind of yeah so for closure bridge there's sort of like a series of ways that you can help out and some of them are like you're not necessarily like in a workshop helping people sometimes you're helping with the curriculum or you're like helping find sponsors for stuff or you're like volunteering at a table at a conference if you're going to it for like actual day of workshops we always end up looking for tas and people to actually teach the class And that's like the bulk of what volunteers do at actual workshops. So teaching is like, there's a curriculum that's already written that you can use, but it's like going through that curriculum and like showing people how to do the exercises and stuff like that. And being the person who sort of stands at the front of the room and does it. And then TAs are people who sort of, depending on the workshop, they either float around as people have questions, or if we have enough TAs, sometimes we just sort of like sit a certain number of attendees and a certain number of uh, TAs at the same table, and then you just sort of like pair with someone as they're going through exercises for the day. So it's usually one of those two things. Yeah, I'm giving I'm giving a workshop myself at RailsConf upcoming about upgrading to, it's about upgrading to Rails 5. And I'm, one of the things I'm super worried about is having enough people in the room <laughs> 
that it's not just like me and the two other people who are committed running around and like <laughs> trying to get like trying to get all these people on the same page. And I have no idea how many people are going to show up, so I don't know if it's going to be like 10 people or 50 people. So, I'm super nervous about that, and I think that experience <laughs> will I think the experience though will make me prepared for something like this as well, so that's cool. Yeah. I know I've I've taught workshops, not closure bridge workshops, but just like programming workshops where I was sort of like the only instructor and there weren't any TAs and there were maybe like 20 plus people who I was like trying to teach and we were trying to do exercises at the same time. And that was a lot harder than having like an instructor or at Closure Bridge, we sometimes have like two instructors that split the day in half just so it's not like a full day of you talking mm -hmm. <laughs> because most people aren't used to like talking for an entire day if you're a programmer. <laughs> so yeah, it's like a very different experience. And at Closure Bridge, we usually shoot for at least like one TA for every three attendees. Although a lot of the time we end up with a lot of people who are willing to volunteer as a TA and we end up with like one TA for every attendee, at least in San Francisco. And then in Austin, we had that also. So That's yeah, awesome. I've done a few Rails bridges, but not recently. And that was my experience at the workshops I attended as a TA. The TA to, to student ratio is one to one. One of the things we've talked about a couple times on the show, um, Sean Griffin, who's one of the co-hosts on the show usually, he has been doing a lot of work on the Rails side to try and get Rails to run well on Windows. And one of the reasons I kept I kept being like, well, why? Like, how many people are really using <laughs> Windows, right? And he keeps making the point, and it's a very yeah. good point that I hadn't considered, is that, like, if you are new to programming, you're not going to run out, and you may not even be able to run out and buy a $1,200 Mac laptop. Yeah, definitely. So making it so that more people can get running with whatever software you're teaching them. In this case, it's Rails. Um, but like basically making that more accessible to everybody on different environments on the computers they already have is super important. And so like I do know from talking to people about volunteering on RailsBridge, it's always like, oh, we had people show up with a Windows laptop and I had to try and get them. So like I think for at least some of the Boston RailsBridge stuff, they have like VMs that are ready to go. But it'd be great to have pe more people paying attention and get to the point where we're not reliant on having virtual machines in order to be able to run these things. Because uh, this is another layer of something you have to teach somebody. Yeah. So at Closure Bridge, we don't have like VMs or anything. We try to like get them up and running on their actual machine. But it is always like kind of hard to find TAs who know how to use Windows. <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs> there's at every workshop I've been at, there's been so far like an attendee shows up with a Windows computer and there's like five, six TAs standing around like trying to figure out how to open the menu. Like really basic <laughs> things. There so used to someone, be a control yeah. panel. Where's where's control yeah. panel? And, <laughs> and then like they switch to the screen that has a bunch of tiles on it now and I'm just like, I have no idea what's even going on. Like what are even the keyboard shortcuts? Yeah. So, <laughs> so people like our Clojure developers who use Windows, it would be really useful if you like helped out with Clojure and stuff. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> So I know that you're also giving another talk at another conference coming up soon. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, it's called Self Conference? Yes, it's in Detroit. So nice. it's happening at the end of May. And is that about closure? Uh, no, that one's about remote work for junior developers. <laughs> okay, totally different topic. Yes, very different topic. So the one that I'm giving at Closure West is mostly like stuff I do in my spare time and then the one that I'm giving at self-conference is, you know, I've, I started learning the code, I guess, like two and a half, three years ago. And most of that time I have spent working remotely, <laughs> which wow. is 
kind of, yeah, I, you know, at least a year of that, I was working remotely with people at a time shift also. So, like, I was on the West Coast and everyone I was working with was on the East Coast. And I think that's a really unusual setup. And most companies don't hire junior developers to work remotely. And I think a lot of that stems from just, like, not necessarily understanding what it entails to onboard someone remotely. I think a lot of the time people think of remote work as being something that you do because they're hiring people who are already independent. And, like, if you left them in a corner by themselves, they would just sort of figure it out if you gave them a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's sort of inherently not the case with junior developers. You have to, like, sit down and mentor them, and you have to, like do pairing more frequently or hopefully like you're doing pairing more frequently with them and all that kinds of stuff so what was your experience like working remotely for that first I, I don't know however long you were working for that first company remotely yeah so I worked remotely for a few different companies there's my first year in programming I was a contractor so about like almost half of that first year I was working remotely I just like companies vaguely <laughs> and then mm. the second year I was full-time with like a big like I guess fortune 50 enterprise company and I was full-time remote there and I was for most of that time the only remote developer too and then oh wow yeah That's... and then the job that I have now I'm now on site in Portland but I was working remotely for them from the Bay Area and they're based in Portland so yeah right so <laughs> when you were working for this big enterprise company were there uh, procedures and workflows in place to help onboard remote people yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that I hear from people who have also worked remotely that it's really hard to get people to do, like switch to doing stand-ups over hangouts and like have everyone do stand-ups over hangouts instead of like doing a conference call or something. That was stuff they were already doing when I started there. <laughs> and, oh, that's good. Yeah, and stuff like, are you using like GitHub? That was already happening before I started there. And like, are you using something like Trello that's more like real time than like a big mm -hmm. giant swath of Jira tickets. Like that was already happening before I started. So I was really lucky. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> because, sounds great. Because I definitely didn't think to ask those questions before I started. <laughs> mm -hmm. And those turned out to be very important things that, you know, I've like I've heard of people working remotely who walked into situations and like didn't realize the tool set that people were using just in terms of like developer productivity tools and it turned out that it was like really old fashioned and miserable. And it was like not at all that experience for me. I think a lot of the stuff that was hard was just sort of realizing that people are having conversations when you're not around. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People not being intentionally exclusive, but just chatting yeah. in person. Yeah. And so did the idea for this talk come out of some pain you have experienced as a remote developer or out of things that you have observed that have worked really well, or both, uh, actually? I think, like, a little bit of both, always. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, with all talks, I think there's sort of, like, some things have gone badly, and, like, kind of want to make sure other people don't make the same mistakes that I did. And then also just, I think that here are some things that have worked really well that other people should do, too. So a lot of the time, I'm, like, on the internet, and I have historically gone to a lot of conferences, and a lot of people know that I work remotely, and they also know what my background is, that I like came from a boot camp and stuff. And I know a lot of people, you know, I like moved to San Francisco from Texas so I could go to a boot camp. And then afterwards I started looking for work and it would have been really, really hard for me to find on-site work back in Texas, which is part of how I ended up moving to the Bay Area was I felt like I had a backup plan if for some reason the jobs I had weren't working out. 
And a big part of that is like, people now will like come out of boot camps and sometimes reach out to me and ask me about how to find remote work because uh, I see. somehow I managed to do that like accidentally. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's been really hard trying to connect them with companies who are like willing to take on remote junior employees because they see remote work as being something where you have to be really independent and they don't see junior developers as being like independent enough to do the job. And I think that that's sort of like a misconception about what remote work should optimally be like. Like, unless you're at a time shift from everyone else you're working with, there shouldn't really be a situation where you're completely independent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's there's like always overlap between time zones unless you're like literally on the other side of the world or something. So it's interesting because like I'm I'm hearing things that I hadn't really thought of before. Like there's the. I'm gonna, I can't remember the name. There's like some sort of fancy, it's called a law, but it's probably not a law. But it's basically that like the communication structure in your team ends up being reflected in your code. Yes. And you mentioned tools, which makes me think like the tools we choose either purposefully or not purposefully end up shaping the communication structures, right? So like if you end up choosing something that's kind of a little more heavyweight and not real time, then your communication structure becomes like one type of system. Whereas if you choose a lot of like low weight, real time stuff, you have another, you optimize for a different type of communication structure, um, which is then, you know, according to this law, going to then shape the the code that you are writing, um, which I thought was a really interesting observation about the, like just the tool, like taking that a step further and choosing, like thinking about the tools you're using, you're using GitHub, are you doing stand up over Hangouts and is everybody showing up onto the Hangout on time? Like that kind of thing just really impacting the experience of remote developers or just even in-person developers. Yeah. And I think a lot of this stuff seems almost sort of, or at least there seems, there's like a different, there are several different classes of like remote work. There's sort of like you're a remote developer and everyone you work with is on site. And then there's like some mixture of the two where it's like 30% plus of the people you're working with are remote and like you're on site. And then there's like just, everyone is remote and distributed and there is no office pretty much. And all of those different scenarios sort of have different ramifications, <laughs> especially if you're sort of like mixing between people who are on site and people who are remote. And in that situation, you have to really think about explicitly what kind of communication you're having with people on your team. Like, how are you talking to people who you work in the office with versus people who you're talking to online? And what does that mean for people who are remote, like they, you're sort of putting them in a position where they have to be more independent just because they're missing so much of the context that everyone on site has. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's part of like, like the way that people set up communication structures in the office in the first place sort of determines whether or not you can hire junior developers and then whether you can hire them to work outside of your office. And I think, I don't know, sometimes people conflate a lot of these ideas and just sort of say, like, this is not a thing that is actually possible because of, they think that it's inherent to the work that they're doing versus the way that they've set up to do that work. Yeah. And I think, like, I've seen lots of arguments from people that, like, remote work doesn't work or, you know, on-premise work doesn't work for, you know, because it optimizes for these things that are, and, like, I think it's with, like, with everything, I think I say this on every episode, it's a trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. And you can make the decisions <laughs> that are best for your, like, the type of organization you want to be um, and the type of organization that you want to optimize for. And like you were saying, just being cognizant of like the decision, like if you are in a situation where most of your workers are on premise and then you have some people who are remote, 
being wary of the fact that the conversations you're having as you're sitting down to lunch with this person are building some sort of culture around your team that these people aren't getting a chance to participate in, right? Or the conversations you're having as you're just like walking for coffee with somebody, right? These are things that those people are missing out on. So like at ThoughtBot, we mostly work locally in an office, but we have several different offices that there's more crossover than there used to be, but um, for the most part, we work separately. And so we try to use Slack and GitHub issues and Trello a lot to like encourage communication between the offices and in real time and that kind of thing. Um, just considering like trying to build a culture that spans the different offices. And I think that's, it's been an interesting experience here for me because that wasn't like, this is the first place I've worked that actually has embraced something like Slack or Campfire or HipChat. And now like all the clients we work with are using that type of thing. But I previously worked for larger companies where that wasn't the case. And we had, you know, one or two remote people who were just like, oh, that's John. He works remote. He gets things done. <laughs> I don't I don't really know about him. I see him once a week in that team meeting we have on the big screen. And that's it. Like I didn't know anything about him. And like Lila and I have met face to face like once or twice, maybe. Yeah. But like I still feel times. like I know Lila well enough. Like yeah. better than I knew John, the remote guy at my last job, right? <laughs> so it's interesting. Like it's just another case of like being cognizant and choosing the right tools and, and being cognizant of the type of organization you want to build. Yeah. Yeah. What tool can have the biggest impact on communication within an organization? I think, as with most things, it depends. (laughs) I think if you're in the same time zone and you're not sort of like co-located, the biggest thing that can help is just like starting to do video calls for things, which sounds like Mm -hmm. a really like basic sounding thing. But I don't know. I've been in a lot of situations and I've heard of a lot of people who still like are set up to work with people in different offices or they work remotely with people in an office and people still use like conference calls or audio chats for everything. Mm -hmm. And there's no element of like video calling, which Mm -hmm. is super, super important to me because I think it's very difficult to empathize with people long term if you never see their face. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I think what's interesting there is that the tool you use for communicating has to facilitate building trust. And one of the easiest ways to build trust and familiarity with people is to talk to them face to face, even if it's not in real life. Yeah. And I think like for development teams in general, like using distributed source control is really important. I think that's sort of like, but (laughs) I'm saying this like assuming that you're already doing that, which also is not always a safe assumption to make, to be honest with you. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean like assuming you're using something like GitHub or whatever, like I say GitHub because I've used Bitbucket in like remote situations and I found that like, or at least like two years ago, it was relatively hard if you had sort of microservices in Bitbucket, like searching amongst them and finding things, but Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've never used Bit- Bitbucket. I used it for like a few months. It was, hmm. it, you know, I think it's good if like you have like a few relatively large services, but when you start breaking things up into microservices, also I'm saying this like couched in the assumption that it is approximately the same as it was two years ago. <laughs> it was harder right. to just sort of like stumble across things organically and search for things across projects based on like things people left in readmes or whatever. It wasn't as good at that. So uh, Interesting. Yeah, you you'd mentioned like the importance of doing like face-to-face communication and when I was preparing my talk last year for code review stuff, I came across a bunch of research about negativity bias. So like one other thing that I find when I'm working with remote people especially is important and really in any written communication is like your words come off so much harsher when they're written down than when you can impart some sort of like emotion with them either with your face or with the intonation of your voice. Yes. 
So like I would work with a lot of teams and we'd be doing code reviews and just the way somebody says something, you're like, if you said that to me in person, I'd be like, <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. You're totally right. That makes sense. Because I would just be able to see your face and know that you didn't mean any ill will of that. But like the way you wrote it and I'm reading it disconnected and I'm complete like disconnected from when you wrote it and how you said it when you wrote it. And maybe I'm already in a bad mood and I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, right? like, <laughs> like this guy again or whatever the case may be. It's just another one of the things you have to think about, I think, when you have remote employees is like a lot more communication happens in a, in a manner where you lose a lot of that subtlety, I guess. Yeah. Um, or maybe not so subtlety of how of the expression on your face or the intonation in your voice, that kind of thing. So being just being more kind, which is something we could probably all stand to do anyway, remote or otherwise. <laughs> um, just being more kind is something that I find helps when I'm working, like where I'm doing a lot of written communication with somebody, like being overly passive, where I'm asking a lot of questions, even though I clearly have a, an, a result I want out of the questions, but like trying very hard not to sound bossy or demanding, basically. Do uh, you... Um... What's your usage of emojis like? Me? Yes. Um, <laughs> I usually use them as a, I usually use them as a joke. Okay. <laughs> like I, if I feel like I have to use an emoji to get across the point that like <laughs> I'm trying to lighten the mood here, I will be like, okay, can I can I actually lighten the mood and by saying this in an entirely different way? Yeah. But I will use emojis just mostly. Uh, <laughs> mostly, I just use it for yes, thumbs up, ship it, and I will just give you a random emoji and a pull request. Yeah, yeah, I'm a <laughs> fan of the random emoji. I enjoy them. <laughs> I think, like, since I started working remotely, so when I started, I was like an English major in college <laughs> to start with, so I wrote like everything in proper English with like periods and was like very formal when I wrote things, <laughs> and then as like. The months passed. Now I'm sort of like, like every message I send has an emoji in it. Like at least one. <laughs> There's like emoji responses everywhere in Slack. All my PRs have at least like a couple GIFs in them. And I have like a special GIFs folder for responses and PRs. And that's all I use them for. <laughs> oh, yeah, I definitely do that too. Yeah. And it depends on the team. Like some teams are like, what are you doing? Because we work <laughs> with a lot of different teams because, you know, every three to six months we're on a different project as a consultant. But when you get into a nice groove, I, I really do enjoy the approval GIF. It's, uh, it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe this is spoiling the talk a little bit, but are there things you think in the hiring process you can optimize for that would help you find both junior and senior people that are more so like from a junior side somebody who's going to succeed when they are working remote and from the senior developer side somebody who is going to work well remotely with more junior developers or other senior developers remotely are there things you think we can look for on the high at the high at time of hiring for that i think it's not necessarily looking for different things but sort of prioritizing the things that you look for differently like if you're hiring someone to work on site i think a lot of the time most of like the emphasis of technical interviews, at least like I've done a fair number of interviews since I finished up, right? And like in those interviews, most of them focused on like, we're going to have you whiteboard things and we're going to ask you a bunch of technical questions. And there were very few opportunities for me to like show them what communication skills I had. Because I mm. think with remote work, especially if you're hiring someone who's junior, like the more junior the person, I feel like a lot of the time, if they haven't been in the right like environments when they were learning, people will shy away from asking questions and they'll get really imposter syndrome-y and they'll sort of just like tunnel away and hoard work for as long as they possibly can until you go and check in on them and see how they're doing, like individually, intentionally. 
And I think the best thing is to sort of create an environment where people feel okay, like, doing work, like, relatively out in the open and asking questions up front and, like, seeing how comfortable someone is with just, like, sitting down and pairing. That goes a really long way just because you're in a position where you're having a one-to-one communication with them, but they're also trying to do something technical at the same time. And I feel like that's a lot of where remote work can go wrong, is like you're trying to focus on something technical and then reaching out to people is an afterthought. Yeah, that all sounds very reasonable to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is kind of a total change of subject, but I've been really curious about what you're doing at Simple. Yeah, so... At Simple, most of the time, I've been writing stuff for, like, ETL. And when I first started there, I was also working on, like, search-related stuff. So building, like, a search service with, like, Clojure and Elasticsearch. That sounds cool. Yeah. (laughs) So when you say ETL, what kind of data are you ETLing? So there's, like, event data from people who come and visit the website and interact with the product. And then there's also data from people actually making transactions through the product. Oh, all the data. Yes, all the data for all the things. <laughs> okay. So you're using Elasticsearch and Clojure. What other tools or languages are you using? So I, I feel like it's a lot of things. <laughs> so oh, the yeah, because you were talking yeah. about Python too, right? Yeah, so the product that I worked on when I started working at Simple was like doing search stuff with Elasticsearch, and that was in Clojure. And then most of the services are actually in Scala, and then we have a few that are in like written plain Java, and then some of them are in Python. So oh, wow. <laughs> quite diverse. Yes, quite diverse, but like fewer than some of the other places I've worked at. Like <laughs> I've been at some places where like a single project had like literally almost seven languages. And then we'd like wow. get an intern and be like, yeah, build this functionality, and then realize they had to like learn six languages to do it. <laughs> Which is like, yeah. So this time it's like the services are potentially in different languages, but there's not like a huge amount of mixture within services themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Do you enjoy being able to switch back and forth between contexts like that? Or would you like, is it hard for you to do? So my thing is I like, I enjoy learning languages anyway in my spare time. (laughs) That's sort of, I think how I met Layla was like, there's an event yeah. series called like Programming Languages I've Been Meaning to Try but haven't gotten around to yet. Mm-hmm. So I go to those for fun and now I've like organized one for fun and I, I really like doing programming language stuff in my spare time and I have friends who are like studying programming language theory and in grad school right now and everything. So for me, like picking up new programming languages is really fun and interesting. I think it sort of depends like what the context is of you building stuff on whether I sort of like it or don't mostly because like the more languages you have in a project realistically the more time it will take to onboard someone onto the project and it sort of depends on what the trade-offs are in terms of onboarding time versus development time like once you onboard them are they going to be so much more productive using those languages that the trade-off is worth it or not and i think a lot of the time also it's it's not just like learning how to be productive and get something to work in that language but like being able to build something in a way that like it's readable, not just to you and everyone around you, but like if all of you disappeared, someone could feasibly come <laughs> in and take over it. Right. I think that's like a very difficult thing to achieve the more languages you include, because it's very hard for people to write something that looks kind of idiomatic if they're writing in like a ton of different languages at once. So 
Right. So you personally enjoy learning new languages and enjoy working in different languages, but from an organizational perspective, it might not be the best decision. Yeah. It's a thing that I like doing, but also like we always like things that are bad for us sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I'm really curious what, like, what is the most technically interesting or challenging thing you're working on right now? So for me anyway, it's like technically interesting and challenging because it's you know, before I started working at this job, I didn't really do data processing per se. I did a lot of stuff involving distributed NoSQL stores. And that was a lot of my work before I started Simple. And so right now, a lot of what I'm doing is sort of like building out a streaming system, which is not really a thing that I did previously. <laughs> oh, yeah, so figuring cool. out like what that looks like and thinking about data sort of relationally is not a thing that I historically have done. Like since I started coding, I was always using like distributed NoSQL stores for everything because that was ah, sort of like okay. my focus. I didn't even really learn how to write SQL <laughs> until I took this job. So okay, cool, it's a lot cool. of like thinking about how things relate to one another instead of just storing everything in a flat way because that's like efficient that's not really the case so that's challenging for me anyway to do cool is there a place that you would like to plug for people to reach out and contact you or anything you'd like to tell everybody about that you're that you want them to come see your talks i guess although for closure west i think this will come out after maybe just after uh yeah well, I mean, they'll record the talk, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, if you're listening to this episode now, you could probably check out the recording of <laughs> KF's talk at Closure West, or you can see her upcoming talk at Self Conference in Detroit, right? Yeah. And my main sort of way people talk to me is on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash KF. Which is, I don't know that I have ever talked to anybody else with a two-letter <laughs> Twitter handle, so yeah, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> I mean, you can people can tweet at you and still have 141 other characters to use in their tweets, which is amazing. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a good thanks chat. for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 60. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed.